Eits Jolkali. What's up? Hey y'all, what's up? You're about to listen to facts, stories, interviews, gossip, live music, booty bump and beats, and much more fascinating things that will be so stunning, there's a possibility that your mind will blow. This show will start five, four, three, two, one. Due to the coronavirus, the following show is being produced and broadcast by the Yolokali youth from their homes. So sit back, relax at home, and enjoy the show. Hello, you are listening to the second show of What's Up Season 15 on WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FN Lumpen Radio, broadcasting live from the comfort of our homes. My name is Melissa, Sandra, Gio, and August, and behind the scenes on production with the rest of the What's Up team. Today's show is going to be about gentrification and the negative effects it is bringing to our neighborhoods, like housing discrimination, commercial displacement, arts influence on gentrification, and how to combat it in your neighborhood. Also, stay tuned for our awesome interviews with Laura Ramirez from Foro del Pueblo, Glow from the Brown Wall Project, and Kukoi, a vendor from Little Village Discount Mall. So, as you guys may know, you know, this whole show is about gentrification. So, I'll start off with this first question for all of you guys. What do you guys think is gentrification? Uh, I think gentrification is like renovating a neighborhood, but not for the purpose of the people in the neighborhood currently. It's for future development, for more people to come in. Definitely, I do think that also. And I personally see it does cause a lot of negative effects because it's, you know, you're displacing people, you're displacing families, and it's very, it targets people of low income status or community. So definitely, I believe it's very harmful. You know, in my community, Little Village, like we're facing kind of like a gentrification period right now. So would anyone want to like elaborate more on that? Yes, I could definitely elaborate more on that. So I'm also a resident here in Little Village. I have grew up here, continue to live here, probably just like you guys here. For sure, even just going back to the question, like what are what I think gentrification is, a lot of people try to tell us that gentrification is to better our communities, to better our neighborhoods, to bring jobs, to do all this. But they do not understand the process and the progress that goes behind this and who has that power. And is very whitewashed. So in reality, they are not bringing in jobs. They are not um, increasing the economy in Chicago. They are, like you said, Melissa, they are displacing people. And so right now in Little Village, what's going on, the discount mall, which is one of the hearts of Little Village, just like many vendors and stores here in the community, has been sold in closed doors under the table by our alderman Cardenas. The vendors came to Cardenas because they saw the proposal. They said, if they're going to sell the discount mall, please let them know. Cardenas said, no, 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 this is not going to happen. You guys, th- that's a rumor. This was in January. February, the vendors, they were informed by themselves, they had to do this research by themselves, that Alderman Cardenas sold the discount mall to Novak Construction. And because of that, they want to bring in targets, Costco's, mass corporations that they like to say it's going to give jobs to the community, but they're not. They're taking away the jobs from the 200 plus vendors that work in that discount mall. 
that's also, a very like, big population. Yeah. Also, just pointing out, you know, Little Village is the second highest gross income or whatever. Yeah. When you talk about like sales and, you know, commercial gain, like Little Village is the second. It goes like before the Magnificent Mile. So just the whole gentrification idea is very like, it like, shouldn't be happening, you know, because Little Village is one of like the second highest, you know, when Chicago earns revenue. So it's in reality, it's not really bettering jobs. You're taking them away, putting these corporations. And, you know, like you said, Gio, like it whitewashes a lot of these cultures. And, you know, like a lot of communities have already been impacted by gentrification. Humboldt Park, I know, is also in the process. Um, Logan Square, Wicker Park, Pilsen. Pilsen was like since 10 years ago, 2010. And now, you know, it's completely different. It was a Mexican neighborhood, but now it has a lot of... um. It's been whitewashed in a sense. So yeah, that's what I'm trying trying to say. Yes, I agree with you. And especially because they they keep putting that message like we are going to better your communities. And it's like our communities are already better than what you think, you know. So it's kind of like that sense. It's kind of them saying our communities are not good enough. Our communities are ghetto. They're not safe. They're this. Why when we when we Google search Little Village, why is the first question is Little Village dangerous? What shooting happened in Little Village? Those are like the first top two questions. Why is it never? How is it in Little Village? You know, not saying why is it dangerous? How is it? How's the culture in Little Village? It's always negative. They view our neighborhood as a ghetto, basically, or a hood, quote unquote, just like they did with Humboldt Park and all the and Pilsen. And why? Because they are people of color that made these communities beautiful. Because in reality, it brings a lot of culture to Chicago. So without these communities, there's no culture in Chicago. It, we would never exist it. It erases us. So with gentrification, people are trying to say, well, it's going to help the people in the neighborhoods. It really is not. It's going to displace them. It's going to raise the rent. Because like what's going on with Little Village, let me break this down for you guys. The rent right now, people pay around 700 to 1200 a month in rent. The minimum, if the scumball becomes to a mass corporation, is going to be the minimum 1200 and above. So if the minimum is 1200 and above, that's, that's a wrap for our community. A lot of people cannot afford that in a month, even if they have um, their children or other people like roommates helping them in. What about their necessities? What about their bills? What about their food? All these factors. A lot of the people in this community, they have families in Latin America. And they have to send money also for their families that are suffering or that they just need money. They just need money. They might not be suffering. They just need money because the money over there is a little more complex. So in reality, it's almost a continuation of colonialism, in my opinion, because Definitely. you see how we placed our neighborhoods and how we made them grow almost like the Aztecs empire. It was It was like so powerful and they just stripped that away. They literally destroyed it. And it's almost like what they're doing now. I think I think it's important to note the the historical context of why why we're in the neighborhoods that we're in why um cities like Chicago are so segregated is because um because the National Housing Act and like the the history of redlining in in giant urban areas it's um what started like in 1934 with the National Housing Act and the and the establishment of the uh, Federal Housing Association from FDR it was it was to benefit white people. It wasn't to benefit any black or brown person. It ended up severely, severely leaving us at such a like disadvantage in in money and in housing. It all stems from this, you know, all the the inequities in education or or our crime rates. It all comes from this ruling, and it was it was. I mean, it's illegal now, you know, but uh, it took a very long time. 
to to get there. And with that time, it was like all the equity from housing that you would get is worthless for people of color or, or black people. Well, not worthless, but you, we, we don't see the same profit. Our wealth isn't growing the same as a white person's would, like in the suburb or something, you know? I totally agree with that. And like how a lot of the redlining, you know, worked was because, you know, banks would give out loans, but they would kind of discriminate just knowing what area you're from or your race. And that's kind of how it started. And, you know, they would deny you the loan. And say if like a white couple comes in asking for like a mortgage mortgage loan or something, you know, they automatically got accepted for it, you know, and then bought like a home here and, you know, they just purchased it and kind of kicked out a lot of like other people from other communities. And it's just very discriminatory how, you know, at that time period it was. And it just proves like a lot of how there's like how Gio already mentioned, like colonialism and just like blatant like prejudice. I just wanted to say that another historical fact that people should know about is white flight and redlining and white flight, you know, it ties together because as late as the 1940s, all but three Chicago neighborhoods had white majority populations. The exceptions were Douglas, Grand Boulevard, and Washington Park. And this is known as the heart of what was known as the Black Belt, the South Side ghetto to which African-Americans were confined. And white flight has a significant effect on suburban and city environments. As the white population moves to the suburbs, they tend to bring with them wealth and funding. This, however, leaves cities with vacant funding, which tends to lead to an increase of poverty and crime, really. Just going on to that, I mean, it's kind of factual Like a lot of Caucasian people or white people, they're like living in the suburbs right now. And, you know, it's all because of white flight, which, as like Sandra already stated, you know, people give out money and obviously they go there and now they leave people here without any funding or proper resources. And this kind of like already alludes to a lot of the problems we have already in Chicago, which one is segregation specifically and how Chicago is already built, you know, it's built to border with bridges and like just train rails and all that and that's specifically how like if you see the structure in Chicago it's kind of built to segregate you and just you know in general the funding a lot of these dangerous neighborhoods as you would like call them are because of lack of funding like there's no proper education no proper resources or health any health provider for them and obviously that leads to a lot of violence in our community there's a you could kind of see like a like a feedback loop there you know the houses in the neighborhood aren't valued at what they should be and therefore there's not enough money to go into the schooling of the community and then with poor schooling you know there's not there's not a reason to like to give that money to the community to raise the house's values and then it just keeps like it's vicious you know it's that's that's messed up Yes, and um, something to tie with that. So for example, the census was this year, right? But let's be completely honest. How many neighborhoods in the South Side have been, the census has advertised for them? I kid you not, I, like I said, I, I am 19 years old now. The census comes every 10 years. So when I was nine, basically, the census should have been advertised here in Little Village and we should have seen people talk about it. Nobody has ever knocked to my door I would ask some of the people who also live in Little Village, they don't know what the census is about. So this information also in itself, they try to put, take it away from us, make it unavailable, hide it from us so that we can also just not have that funding for our schools, our um, hospitals, anything in this in our neighborhoods. Why is this outside always being not thought of, you know? And another thing that I was talking with some people here in Little Village, 
I was talking to them and they were telling me how a lot of the times uh, their landlords or who they pay for, for their houses, a lot of them are from the suburbs. And that always makes me question, why are people from the suburbs buying properties here and overpricing rent for people here in Chicago when they're all the way in the suburbs paying probably half the rent that someone in the city is paying? especially someone here in the South side, immigrant families. To me, that just that just shows almost like the systematic racism because it can kind of connect to white flight because a lot of them told me that their landlords are white and they live in the suburbs. They don't know el ambiente. They don't know how it is here in Chicago in the South side in Little Village or wherever you are at. Yeah, and I would totally agree with that. And just going on, you know, a lot of these house owners, you know, here in Little Village are white people, you know, immigrant families are housing here, are living here, and kind of contribute to the whole environment here. But like, I also do want to like, kind of bring up the topic of what will happen if our neighborhood is already gentrified? Like, what are the aftermaths? And it really makes you think because it's kind of going to be like a reverse version of white flight, where you know, a lot of people from the suburbs will be migrating here. And they'll be kicking us kind of out to the suburbs are like not a very urban area. And what does this mean? Does that mean that we're going to be kind of impoverished in there? Uh, like, what are going? To be, what are the resources there? Do we have any form of representation? And just with the census already, I was like, I'll admit it. Like, I, we need a lot of community engagement. We need a lot of community unity because in order for you kind of like to resist it, you need to be united. You need to inform other people about it. So I actually think it's very important, you know, to inform others of what is happening in uh, like you know the sense is already kind of ended but motivate others to become more involved in it and i think this year more more people participate in the census but obviously it's like very important for everyone to represent themselves and you know because you're going to be underrepresented or there's going to be some type of thing that's going to maybe be very detrimental to you so like i kind of do promote like community engagement and unity and just inform others about what is happening right now in their community and what they can do agreed and i guess that kind of just brings us into the question like i'm asked this for everyone in here what changes have you seen in your neighborhoods let me bring this up i've seen too many changes but you can go first august let me just let me just first say the giant coal plant that just went down this year that was a pretty big change I like how no one told us, you know, I like how by like, I mean, I don't like, I don't like that no one told us. <laughs> that was like during a, during a pandemic too, like all this ash flying around all to build something that's supposedly for us, but really we, I mean, it's pretty, it's plain to see that it's for the future of whoever is living in this neighborhood or, or who plans to live in this neighborhood, you know, it's not truly for the people living in the neighborhood now, but I always heard that joke, like, you know, you know, gentrification is coming when you see the joggers coming out. They, they come in droves. They'll be jogging down the street. I actually like, was going to point that out. Like, I've know? seen a lot of people jogging and I'm kind of scared because I'm like, what are you running from? Like, am I supposed <laughs> to be kind of worried? And then I see people jogging for fun and I'm just like, oh, wow, that is interesting, which I don't know, because I'm scared if people run like right in front of me. And I'm like, what are we running for? Like, should I be joining you? And then they're like running for fun. And But, you know, it also proves how like kind of like the environment where we're raised. But and I mean, just the disco mall in general, like I also seen a lot of street vendors there. There's been significantly less street vendors. There's not a lot of people, you know, selling a lot of artisanal stuff like down in the streets. There's not a lot like I don't see that. And a lot of it is because from what I've heard is kind of the police comes there or someone and says oh you can't sell here 
like you're scaring some people off or whatever. And obviously it does decrease like the income there and, you know, the opportunity for other people. I have noticed a lot of police cars and that has been bothering me every time I go to bed. It hurts my head. It breaks my heart because I really do not understand what they're here for. And in a way, I kind of know who sends them. And that person is most likely, and I'm not saying this to be funny because this is literally her name. Her name is Karen. And she is one of the owners for Nova Construction who bought the discount mall. And she is the one that tries to kick vendors out from making money. And one day, I rem- I don't know if you guys remember, it was on the week of Mexican independence. It was it was before Mexican independence happened. So I believe it was like maybe the 13 or 14. When I tell you the streets were blocked with cop cars everywhere. Y- y'all want to know how that happened? It happened with just one phone call from Karen. That's, that's literally her name. I'm not trying to be funny. Karen, who called and said that the vendors are in her property. So they closed the whole little village down. They didn't just hold. They didn't just close the area in the disco mall. They closed the whole plaza. And they closed all the way from where the little village arc starts all the way to Pulaski. That's crazy how she had that power which is one phone call. And to me, that just shows that something could potentially come here. And that's why it's important for us to, even like how we're doing now, talk about these things, inform our communities and to unite with one another. Because what, how is it that one phone call, one person who's not from the neighborhood was able to shut down a whole neighborhood, especially on a, um, just on a, on a week where we just have to celebrate our pride, the little pride that we have from what we accomplished from the colonizers, you know, the little bit of freedom that we have, they want to take that away from us in that week. Yeah. And like, I remember that day because I live by Pulaski. So I definitely did see a lot of cops that day. And, you know, just hear policing sirens and just people kind of, you know, showing their patriotism. But I mean, it's kind of scary just in general, just having cops in a neighborhood and just kind of inciting fear is something that, you know, shouldn't be happening in any neighborhood. And especially for younger people, older people and all that, because in a sense, it's kind of, you know, you're training people to become fear from like, you know, a lot of these things. So definitely that's really bad. And I do remember that. And I didn't sleep that day. I do remember that. And that's why we are having groups like helping us with these movements like Juntos por la Villita, which I'm a part of. And there's a lot of youth and a lot of vendors and a lot of people in the neighborhood and people that are not from the neighborhood, but they they want to keep the neighborhood how it is. They're coming together. They are making these changes. They are having gatherings. And the way they're having gatherings is through events like I don't know if you guys came to the event that we've hosted on by the Little Village Disco Mall. It was for um, uh, Independencia Mexicana and the 16th of September. And we had a blast. We were dancing. We had Aztec prayers come and like we had a whole prayer session. It was just beautiful. We were just manifesting for our neighborhood to stay, our culture to stay. And even other groups came in, like a lot of groups from the Black Lives Matter came in, the Brown Barrettes. A lot of artists came in to perform. It was just beautiful. And and it just shows that we all just come together to help any cause. You know, if the groups for Black Lives Matter needs Juntos por la Villita, we would be there 
you know, if the Brown Barrettes needs all of us together for what they're advocating, we would be there, you know, and that's that's how it should be. Should be a community. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. And we'll be going on a short little break. We're going to be playing Suburban Home by The Descendants, so stay tuned for that. I want to be classified. I don't know if you know this, but uh, you're listening to What's Up with Gentrification. And you're listening to WLPN LP, Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpin Radio, broadcasting live from the comfort of our homes. Welcome back. Thank you, August. So, everybody, we are soon going to listen to this audio piece. I had the privilege to interview the am- amazing Kokoi. Um, she is a vendor here in Little Village, uh, focused in the Discount Mall. And like we were talking before, the Discount Mall has been sold to Novak Construction by George A. Cardenas, the alderman of the 12th Ward. And so this has affected the vendors immensely because everything that's been going on, it has been going on in closed doors. They heard of the proposal around January and they knocked on Cardenas' doors and asked them, personally, what is going on? Are you going to sell the discount mall? And Cardenas responded to them, no, we are not. That's crazy. A month later, they found out by themselves through sources that the mall was sold to Nova Construction. So it all started with a lie. And Kokoi is going to help break us down how that affects the vendors, how that affects the community. And so without further ado, let's listen to Kokoi. Mi nombre es Cocoy Malagón y llevo viviendo en Chicago alrededor de 25 años. Tengo una familia, tengo mis dos hijos, mi esposo que juntos trabajamos en, en un negocio familiar. El ambiente de la villita me gusta por la razón de que no te sientes como ausente de tu, de tu ciudad o de tu pueblo. Entonces te sientes identificado, no extrañas nada. Me encanta que siga trabajando en el Discount de la Villita y ayudando a las jovencitas a cumplir sus sueños de tener el vestido perfecto, de quinceañera. Um, ¿Cómo te va en tu negocio? ¿Ha tenido problemas? Sí, uh, bueno, todo es a raíz del, del cambio que se está haciendo ahora. Sí, sí hemos estado teniendo problemas. Y con respecto a la pandemia, pues todavía se nos acumularon más los problemas. Con la información que nos han dado de que en verdad es nada de información sobre el progreso, según dicen para el, el Discount Mall, ¿cómo han venido Novak o el Alderman Cardenas a comunicarse con los vendedores sobre esta compra? Ah, mira, ah, la historia comienza con, con mentiras. Realmente es una gran mentira. Eh, nos, los vendedores nos enteramos en noviembre del año pasado 
de una posible venta y nos enteramos por los medios de comunicación. Entonces decidimos juntarnos un grupo de más o menos unas 30 vendedores y fuimos a la oficina de George Cárdenas, le hicimos la pregunta directa, ¿qué sabe de la, de la venta del disco mall? Y puso una cara de sorpresa de, ¿what? Pero nos, nos contestó, no sé de lo que hablan, en realidad no hay ningún proyecto, no hay nada claro, sus palabras típicas, no hay nada firmado, no hay nada seguro. Entonces dijo, pero si yo supiera que va a haber una venta, seguro que se los hago saber y veríamos cómo trabajaríamos en eso, pero les aseguro que yo estoy de su lado. Entonces, uh, realmente mintió porque en febrero del, próximo, del siguiente año se vendió el mall. Entonces, ¿cómo te sientes sobre todo esto? ¿Crees que Cárdenas tiene las intenciones de gentrificar y desplazar a la gente de la villita? Totalmente estoy segura que él quiere una gentrificación y me da pena, me da pena porque nuestros políticos deberían de sacar la cara por su propia gente y de verdad que, que se ha visto tan mal a, al ver que nosotros somos una fuente de ingresos que cuando tú dices, bueno, va a traer mejores proyectos para la comunidad en terrenos baldíos, abandonados... Entonces tú dices, sí, no, hay que hacer algo por la comunidad, pero cuando esos terrenos están ocupados y estamos demostrando día a día que generamos dinero y pagamos un taxes ¿verdad? a nuestra ciudad y que demostramos que somos la segunda entrada de dinero a la ciudad de Chicago, entonces te, te preguntas, ¿por qué soy discriminado de esta, de esta manera? ¿Por qué nuestros líderes no se acercan no nos oponemos al progreso, siempre lo he dicho. Quiero ser parte del progreso. ¿Por qué no puedo ser parte del progreso? ¿Por qué esos grandes desarrolladores no vienen y, e invierten su dinero en la comunidad como ellos dicen, verdad? Inviértanlo en la comunidad. ¿Por qué vas a matar los empleos que nosotros ya tenemos y que no pedimos ayuda, que nosotros los generamos por nosotros mismos? Y le hemos dado vuelta y vuelta a este negocio hasta conseguir 30 años. No cualquier negocio vive 30 años en las condiciones en las que estamos. Realmente somos muy afortunados y es porque es el arduo trabajo de mis compañeros y yo día a día el ir a trabajar. Me pregunto todos los días, ¿con qué facilidad llega una sola familia llamada Nova con tanto poder económico y quiere desplazar a más de 120 familias. ¿Por qué? ¿Cuál es la diferencia entre ellos y nosotros? Si nosotros también generamos. Ahora, como te digo, no nos oponemos. Ven, Nova, ven. Muéstranos tu plan e incluyenos. Ustedes van a quedar aquí, pero lo vamos a complementar con algunas innovaciones que serían buenas para lo, la comunidad. ¿Está bien? Como, como siempre lo he dicho, ven y dime cuánto me toca pagar de renta o tal vez cuánto me cuesta mi pedazo. ¿Por qué no? Y, y decir algo justo para que yo continúe generando uh, dinero para, la, para nuestra ciudad de Chicago. Ahí es donde entra el rol de nuestros políticos, que ese es su trabajo. Fueron electos para ser servidores públicos y al parecer se les olvida. 
están ahí para servirnos. Fueron electos y les dimos la confianza. Hey, haz lo mejor para la comunidad. Entonces ahora se olvidan por unos cuantos miles de dólares que donan esas grandes corporaciones para, para sus campañas. Me parece demasiado eso. Nosotros comenzamos a organizarnos más o menos en junio. Empezamos a repartir flyers y fuimos escalando a cada mes más y más. Entonces el punto es dejarles saber a la comunidad que no nada más los vendedores del disco mall van a ser los desplazados. No, sino que la gentrificación, nosotros somos, yo lo veo así como la barrera, el muro para que no toquen a la villita. Si a nosotros nos desplazan, se viene un desplazamiento como un efecto dominó. Entonces, tenemos que educar a nuestra comunidad en decir, hey, tus taxes van a subir, ¿verdad? Tienes que, que salir y llamar al, al alderman y dejarle saber que tú no quieres eso, que quieres... Hay cosas que no se pueden controlar como eh, el alza de taxes, pero entonces ahí viene nuestra educación. ¿Por qué no decirle a nuestra comunidad, exígele al Alderman que ponga talleres educativos para que si tú rentabas por ocho, cuatro años, diez años, ¿por qué ahora no puedes ser dueño de tu propia propiedad? Y entonces así podríamos mantener nuestras propiedades eh, en nuestro barrio y, y con, una, con una comunidad más educada. ¿Cómo les fue en el evento que llevaron a cabo el 16 de septiembre durante la celebración de la independencia mexicana? Ese evento creo que va a quedar muy grabado en mi mente porque fue algo que no esperábamos tener tanto éxito y, y sé que los vendedores no lo hubiéramos hecho. Si no es toda la energía, la positividad de los jóvenes que se unieron y eso me dejó saber que esos jóvenes no están dispuestos a que desplacen a sus abuelos, a que se rían de sus padres, sino que ustedes ya tienen un, una voz, un voto, que, que tal vez muchos padres y abuelos no pueden votar, pero los jóvenes sí dicen, hey, a mí ya no me ves la cara porque ahora yo ya estoy preparado. Tal vez mis padres, mis abuelos vinieron y trabajaron con su fuerza de trabajo, pero ustedes como jóvenes trabajan con su cerebro. Entonces, creo que los políticos, uh, mi frase favorita fue de ese evento, se equivocaron de comunidad, porque nuestros jóvenes nos respaldan, ahí se vio que, que no están de acuerdo en ese desplazamiento, que no están ignorantes y que no van a permitir ser pisoteados. Y sí, y también yo creo que que también de parte pues es nomás es sabiendo que crecemos unos de aquí o sea como yo me acuerdo diciendo en mi, en mi speech como yo teniendo mi elotero, él siempre me esperó desde chiquito desde que tenía pañales como dice mi papá, entonces siento que también como los vendedores nos han dado como un rol de seguridad aquí en nuestra comunidad, entonces Ahora es nuestro tiempo también como a protegerlos a ustedes casi. Porque, como dice, uno, uno se arriesga de venir, de cruzar la frontera y todo para, 
que uno tenga, como dicen, una mejor vida, ¿verdad? Y es nomás ahora hacer esa vida, no nomás para nosotros que somos ciudadanos y tenemos esa ventaja, pero para nuestros padres, nuestra comunidad, a todos. Nos inspiran ustedes también como nosotros les inspiramos a, a ustedes. Es así, un dos o el otro. Sí, es verdad lo que dices, Giovanni. Es muy satisfa me satisface mucho el escuchar que los jóvenes se involucran. Y, y créeme que yo fui una de las primeras que empecé a organizar a los vendedores, pero estaba desubicada, no sabía cómo, ¿verdad? Entonces, quienes se me acercaron fueron jóvenes y dijeron, ¿qué está pasando aquí? Nosotros queremos ayudar. Y ellos fueron los que empezaron a, a marcar el rumbo de, de este movimiento, ¿no? De Juntos por la Villita. Y eso es lo que me hace todavía, a veces me pregunto con otras uh, mujeres que estamos al frente, ¿no les, ¿no les seguimos el ritmo? Porque ustedes tienen tanta energía que nosotros nos cansamos y decimos, no, ya no puedo, ya no puedo. Pero es increíble su su ánimo de ustedes como jóvenes. Bien dicen, juventud, divino tesoro. Cuando la comunidad se une, nos empoderamos. Somos una comunidad ya establecida. ¿Qué esperamos de nuestra comunidad? ¿Nos venceremos? Yo creo que no deberíamos. Creo que todo empieza como la, la pregunta anterior que me hiciste. ¿Cómo lo haríamos? Y lo principal es educar a nuestra comunidad. Eso es lo principal. Hay que darle herramientas, hay que, no tanto de decir, hey, aquí no, no se plantan, aquí no vienen, no. Hay que negociar, hay que hablar y, y tomar los caminos correctos. Cuando sea de política, de política, cuando sea de negocio, de negocio. Cuando sea respeto a la comunidad, se debe de, de hablar con líderes. Tenemos que empezar, como ya tú lo estás haciendo, con jóvenes, a tener líderes jóvenes para poder no doblarnos y tener herramientas para defendernos. Yo creo que los pasos hasta ahora hemos tenido uh, dos eventos, con este del Día de Muertos van a ser tres, y no hemos conseguido que, que George Cárdenas se acerque a nosotros. Al comienzo de la plática, como te decía, él nos engañó, ¿verdad?, con mentiras. Y nos prometió que iba a traer unos planos y nos prometió que nosotros íbamos a ser incluidos. Pero siempre utiliza sus palabras, no está nada escrito. De ahí jamás lo volvimos a ver. Entonces ahora lo que vamos a hacer es presionar con propaganda más fuerte, más, más directa al concejal. Si no quiere que salpiquen más gente, tiene que, tiene que sentarse a hablar con los vendedores. Es tan fácil como eso solamente como gente civilizada. Siéntate, habla con esa familia nova, tráelos a la mesa y, y veamos cuál es lo mejor tanto para esa corporación como para la comunidad y los vendedores. ¿Y tienes unas últimas palabras para informar a los que no saben lo que está pasando en la villita o unas palabras directas a George Cárdenas? Sí, primero es para, para la comunidad. No dejemos que, que mate nuestra cultura, porque más que matar al mol es más que negocio, es nuestra cultura, es nuestra manera de identificarnos. 
Entonces sí deberíamos de estar unidos porque no nada más los vendedores van a ser perjudicados. Como te decía, va a ser un efecto dominó y va a ser lamentable que acabe nuestro barrio como si fuese nada. Eso nos costó a nosotros, nadie nos ayudó. Entonces deberíamos de sentirnos orgullosos como vendedores. Incluso los vendedores ambulantes son parte de nuestra cultura. Yo no me atrevo a decir que los muevan por nada, porque son parte, nos identifican. Es tan cómodo vivir en la villita y decir, se me antojó un pan, una concha, y salir a la panadería de la esquina. Tan fácil como decir, hoy oh, se acabaron las tortillas, deja, voy aquí a la esquina. Eso no lo dan los suburbios. Deberíamos de valorar lo que tenemos. Cuando vives en un suburbio necesitas un carro para moverte y contaminas más que en la villita. Ahora, concejal Cárdenas, creo que sí es un hombre inteligente, pero me gustaría que enfocara esa inteligencia a realmente ayudar a su comunidad y no venderse por algo. Un hombre que vale no tiene precio y cuando te ponen un precio no vales nada. Entonces, me gustaría que Cárdenas de verdad sacara la cara y dijera, mi comunidad no la tocas y la vamos a incluir en el proyecto. Y tengo estos planes para los vendedores. No somos necios, somos abiertos de mente y decir, sí, me incorporo a ese progreso, ¿por qué no? La villita no se vende. And that was Kokoi. So, do you guys see how powerful that was? Just hearing from a vendor in the disco mall talk about how the injustice happens and all the way from our aldermen to people that own these places. It's it's crazy to imagine how all of this went behind closed doors, but they, the community and the vendors made it upon themselves to attack this problem, to help stop gentrification. And it was important for me to have Kokoi because in this community and Little Village, not everyone understands English. And so for our other viewers, we need to have that Spanish representation. And Kokoi did that for y'all. And so for any for anyone that didn't really understand uh, the message Kokoi was saying, because you might not understand Spanish, here you go. So Like I said earlier, um, Kokoi actually corrected me. They found out about the plan of selling the disco mall in November. And so when they did go to Cardenas in his office and asked them face to face what's, hap what's going on, he acted surprised. He said that he was on the vendor side. If there was something to go down, it was not going to happen. He will not allow it. That's why when Kokoi was mentioning in February, they found out that the disco mall was sold to Novak Construction. And so with that, that's where all the lies started. That's where everything here begins, the issue begins. And so she says she is ashamed because she feels like the aldermen should be pushing the neighborhood to the forefront. She agrees that we should do something if they're abandoned, but when it's bringing in work like the disco mall is, why should that be sold? They should invest in the community because we don't need help because we have been living and bringing in money for more than 30 years. And that's thanks to the, the work that her and her coworkers do by working, waking up every morning to go to work, especially during these times when, while we're in a pandemic. And Kokoi says it's astonishing to her that they would want to hurt families, that Nova Construction would want to hurt families as they are a family company. At least make the vendors and the community a part of the progress. 
That's where the and she says that's where the aldermen come to play. They should do what is best for the community. Just because they have money, does that mean that they should forget about us? Like Okoye keeps saying, it creates a wall to our neighborhood, just like they did with Mexico. Why don't they want us here? The problem with gentrification is the increase of taxes and causing displacement. Also, why can't the vendors become owners of their own business? Why can't they allow that? The 16th of September is one of her precious memories, and she loved that the youth was the ones that helped make this event happen because it shows they won't allow their grandparents and parents who came here for their children, allow someone displace them. Her favorite phrase was, you have, they came for the wrong community. And this sh to her, it showed that the youth won't allow the culture and community to be erased. She was one of the first to help start this movement. And it was the youth that helped make this happen, she said, um, Juntos por la Villita. They have to negotiate with us and we need more youth leaders that will help defend us, make us a part of the plan. She said they haven't had Cardenas approach them and that is their goal. They want to have a conversation, which she questions, why can't they just have a civilized conversation? Why does, what is so hard for an alderman to talk? to the people in their community. Isn't that what they're they're meant to do? She asked, so what has to be done is continue to create propaganda much stronger. Just like civilized people, they should be open to talk to us and conversate about the progress. She says to the community, we shouldn't allow them to kill our culture. The mall is more than the economy, but it's our culture. They will kill our culture. She says, no one helped us. Our beautiful vendors helped make this happen. We made this happen. The community did. She says it's a privilege to have local stores that whenever you're craving a pastry or tortillas or anything, you can just go to your to a block away or it's probably in your block, any local store. She says not a lot of suburbs have that. Not a lot of other neighborhoods have that, but Little Village does. And so she says that's a privilege. We should be proud of what we got. And she sends a message to Cardenas that she doesn't think he isn't dumb. All she says is that she feels like if he's going to have that position, if money's in, in the picture, a man with money doesn't make that man valuable. And so what Cardenas needs to do is help the community because he was selected by the community. And so that's his role. And so that's what Kokoi shared with us. And wow, just wow. All right, guys, you are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpton Radio, broadcasting live from the comfort of our homes. And we are back. Remember, you are listening to WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, broadcasting live from the comfort of our homes. And in today's show, we are talking about gentrification and the negative effects it is bringing to our neighborhoods, like housing discrimination, commercial displacement, art influences on like gentrification, and, you know, kind of in general, how to combat it in your neighborhood. Um, we do have a special guest here, and her name is um, Laura Ramirez. She is a community activist and member of the Foro del Pueblo. And so it's just an honor to have you here. If you could kind of introduce us, tell us more about you. Hi, good afternoon. So my name is Laura Ramirez, and I'm a resident of Little Village. I 
originally came here from Mexico, Mexico City, when I was about 13 years old. So I moved around the city several times, but came back to Little Village when my father passed away and he left us a house to take care of here. So it's been an interesting journey because, you know, one of the pieces that, you know, I'm a professor of education. I actually like, like to add, I have a PhD from the University of Illinois at Chicago. But one of my commitments is mainly around continuing to work with folks from my neighborhood and from people that I come from, right? Um, and I think that one of the pieces that's really important to all of the, us listening, especially young folks, is like, once you think you make it out the hood, you got to come back. You got to come back and you got to, you know, bring everybody else with you. You can't just leave and think that you're going to have a better life and leave everyone behind right i think that if more people had a consciousness around the commitment that we should have to our people our neighborhoods would look really different right so yeah so that's a little bit about me i've been working as an organizer slash activist for over 15 years when i was a teacher at inglewood high school and it got shut down through the program that they call renaissance 2010 which eventually ended up closing over 100 schools most of any other city in the entire nation and 90 percent actually 95 percent in Black and Latino neighborhoods. So um, my commitment again is to my community to continuing to work for the for the human rights that we deserve and that we can come together to really make a change when we need to. So thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And like kind of the first question to already kind of tie in the thing is um, what do you like most about your community? So, you know, when I came from Mexico, I didn't speak English, right? Um, and so being from a new country and somewhere where you already don't want to be, because I don't want to be here, right? Um, I, you know, I know maybe some of you came as immigrants or your parents did. Um, if you ask most folks that had to migrate, most of us didn't do it because we wanted to, right? We were what I always call myself as a forced migrant. So coming from Mexico and speaking Spanish and being in a warm place with my culture right into this country that is cold that is literally pretty ugly literally, I mean at least our neighborhood as much as I love it, it doesn't have any trees really you know the streets are messed up you know it's dirty so coming into that right was really really shocking but at the same time um I realized it was the only place that allowed me to speak Spanish and be me, right? It kind of gave me a buffer in between coming from my country into this country, which I never really felt wanted me here anyway. Um, so being able to be in my in my community, eating my food, you know, walking around people that look like me, that accepted me, made it a little easier for me to come into the space that I already felt was not very friendly towards me, especially in the school system. So what I love about it is that it's a space where we can be who we are, where we can be proud of who we are, where we can maintain our roots, where we can really grow our consciousness around the, the things going on here and also in Mexico and Latin America too, you know, because we're connected to, with through networks um, with people that are in other in our countries of origin as well. So I think it's a place where we can continue to really birth the positive things of our culture and continue to keep our language alive as well as grow our knowledge of our indigenous languages, right, um, in Mexico too. So I that's what I really love about it. Awesome. So as you may know, like our show is about gentrification and off the bat, like what is gentrification? How does it happen or why does it happen? If you could further elaborate on that. So gentrification happens when um, usually it, it happens in many ways, right? So one of the trends that we've seen in Chicago specifically and in other large cities has been when artists come into the neighborhood and not artists like Gloria who live, <laughs> but other artists that, you know, come from other neighborhoods and they're like, oh, it's cheap to live there, right? There's a lot of art already on the streets. If you walk through Little Village, there's a lot of murals that have already been here. And I want to also, and I, I don't want to take Gloria's um, 
spotlight, but I'm sure she'll talk about the way that murals are a way for people to tell our histories, right? Um, so we bring that with us. Um, so a lot of the ways in which we have coexisted, again, in spaces that are not friendly with us is by beautifying them, right? By creating beauty in spaces that are not the most welcoming or, be or beautiful to us, right? Because we're very people who love beauty and who love color um, and music, right? So they fall in love with that vitality. They fall in love with that soul, right? And so they want to consume it. Again, I think a lot of capitalist culture, specifically, you know, white supremacist culture is about consumption. So through that consumption, they think that they can own, if they own the space, if they're closer to it, somehow it'll um, bring that into their lives, right? So rather than respecting it and being like, well, you know, that's like a heritage of those folks. They want to not only consume it, but replicate it in use it to their benefit right so what we have seen is the artists come right and they start renting um, even spaces that are in ways that are more um they can pay a little more money right so the people start to see oh you know what there's interest in these spaces right so they start to raise the rents right and also when they come they demand things that a lot of our people don't demand right like fix the apartment and now you have to have a livable instead of having you know like wajita from 1950s i want brand new everything right so the people who the houses have to invest in them to make it livable for the new communities that are coming in so all of that has a lot to do with raising the prices of the of the property right once they get assessed by the city but also that's just the individual right but there's also the systemic ways in which it happens right which is when real estate companies um school systems and cities work together to really get rid of poor folks and people of color to move in a new population because there's access to things like transportation closer to downtown um that's another connection with why the schools were closed right they wanted to make sure there were no bad schools with bad students which literally means people of color specifically black and latino and uh, they wanted to remake the whole education system so in order to bring in people that are you know richer wider and have more affluence um and you know so i think part of it is also the ways in which once the rents are raised the property values go up then the taxes go up right so the residents that were already living there cannot afford it the ones that own the houses and there's also these ways in which they can take away your house right like if you own a home and you haven't paid your taxes because you're having money problems somebody can pay them for you and 10 years later literally claim that property right and kick you out so slowly they start to move the residents that they came to live there with out and that after the artists you know the artists even get priced out of those things and then you get the more middle class white folks or the you know more affluent people that can afford the higher rents and that are demanding the new restaurants right they're demanding that they fix up the streets so one of the things that i always hear people say is like oh that neighborhood is nice now right like pilsen i mean in the 1990s was like a bloodbath like it was everybody was getting shot up even worse than now i remember going from high school in we used to take the 60 bus and used to go through Pilsen and Little Village. And even though Little Village was violent and was really dangerous at the time, Pilsen was worse. Right. So I remember dropping off my students there, I mean, my, my class students, my um, my classmates there and being like, oh, you know, pray over you because you might get shot. Right. It was like a joke that we would say when you got off in person. So to see um, and it's been like 20 years. Right. So to, to see go from that, like a super violent place that nobody wanted to live in, that you were afraid for your friends, where people got shot up all the time, where Juarez was like a school that was dangerous. Right. So now what it is, it's like, whoa, that is gentrification right now. It's pretty and it's nice. But who 
lives there and who can afford to live there, right? And who are they catering to? So I think overall, um, gentrification is a very violent process that really removes people forcibly through economic and also um, spatial ways, and in which makes room for new populations to benefit from the culture and uh, all of the good things that we left behind, but without us. It's kind of like the way that they took the southwest of the United States, you know, Texas, Utah, New Mexico, and they, and they made us illegal in our own land. It's basically the same way, right? Like, we want your land, we want the riches, but we don't want you. Totally. And, you know, and, you as know, what you mentioned, you mentioned gentrification, gentrification has been a whole been thing or a subject in our city. Like, and it's also risen. And right now it's currently attacking Little Village. So one of my questions is, how can the community become more united on issues like these? Like, how do we combat this? So one of the things, you know, I mean, there's many ways, right? I think that what you're doing is one way, right? Bringing, especially you all, young folks, right? Who unfortunately are going to have to pick up the fight when we are tired, right? I'm old. I know I don't look old, but I'm old. And I've been doing this work for a really long time. And so I'm tired, you know? And not to say that I don't want to continue to do it, but I have, you know, worked with so many young folks over the last 20 years that I feel like I trust you all to take up the baton and maybe just guide a little bit. So I think you all taking interest and actually it as your space to make these changes is critical right that's one of the most important steps too is I, i'm officially an elder because i'm over 40 it's talking to us about the ways the strategies and the tactics and the things that we have done that haven't worked and that have worked right because obviously we had the answer we wouldn't be talking about it um so i think that there's a lot to learn from folks like us that have done the work for a while but we also um really need to trust you to take on your own strategies and tactics and analysis to take it to the next level because it, it needs to be uprooted completely but i think the worst enemies is ourselves we are our own worst enemies our people are our own worst enemies right it's like it's so many layers in terms of the ways in which we give our power away to white folks and white supremacy right when we start to think that whiteness is what's desired that the way that white people live is the way that we should live when we start to move out of our neighborhoods and make room for other white people when we start to say oh you know i'm not going to rent to a black person i'd rather rent to this white person because that they can give me more money and you know they can better the neighborhood right so i think a lot of the ways in our own individual decisions also play in the ways that we allow that you know and i don't say the enemy but yeah you know in some ways because they are our lives don't matter to them right so in some ways they are threatening our not just our livelihood but our very lives right um because the violence continues and when there's the shootings and the robberies they don't get affected we do right so i think that part of it is recognizing our own worth the value of our culture the value of our spaces right caring for them. Um, and then the other part is organizing, right? Having an analysis that is systemic around the ways that people benefit from our poverty, that people benefit from our displacement, um, the ways that the city has intentionally for decades, you know, starved our community that hasn't given us the basic services that we need that continues to poison us through, you know, blowing up power plants and now, you know, creating an Amazon warehouse only a mile away from my house, which is going to hurt even more ability to just breathe, right? The fact that we're in 2020 and asking a city that is supposed to be a world-class city to give us air. I mean, I think that that's just such a basic human right, right? Like poisoning our waters. I mean, there's just so much going on, right? And we're so distracted. I think that in some levels, our individualism really hurts us, right? The fact that it's like, oh, I want this, I want the car and I want the job and I want to do better. 
uh, but we don't really worry about what's happening in our own backyards right until it explodes literally like Hilco did right um, so I think part of it is being aware informing ourselves about what really is happening behind the scenes who's making the decisions holding elected officials accountable organizing as a community with whatever tactics we need and having the courage the strength and the wisdom to do the work that we need to do in order to preserve not and not in a way to keep people out but but in a way to keep us here to keep our roots to have the access to the things that we have grown and evolved and to basically fight for our basic human rights right which we shouldn't have to do in the u.s but we do have to right and also one thing i wanted to add that i didn't mention is that what's really important about little village is that also it's the immigrant haven right and a lot of people who are coming from other spaces don't have a space where they can be themselves without feeling you know worrying about la migra or ice all the time and even then we still do but there's enough of us who care and know and understand to protect the space right but if they go into a white neighborhood into another neighborhood who's going to protect them who's going to you know make sure that they're safe right so i think part of it is understanding that united there's a lot of power like they say you know el pueblo vencido el pueblo unido jamás será vencido that's true right like the people do need we need to unite as a common front and understand that we are not each other's enemies you know that we are actually each other's like um refs of like what is it called like we can survive with each other we can build with each other we can be beautiful with each other instead of you know picking at each other and being like i don't like where who you organized with or what you did right like at the end of the day one of the issues is also having nonprofits in the neighborhood who you know benefit from government money but they don't really benefit the people here and by the work that they do sometimes they do bring more gentrifiers into the neighborhood right so i think that we also have to analyze that and like you said, we need to become more united and promote unity. So my other question is, what are ways we can resist these drastic changes? So, you know, one of the things that they're doing today that I know about is they're doing a protest in the discount mall. And I know there's someone else in the show that either talked about it or will talk about it. Um, however, I think that, you know, for me, in my experience organizing for over a decade, having a protest is not enough, right? You need a long-term strategy of what are you, of several, several ways, right? So one of the things, I'm also part of the Who Do I Z, which is this online creative media political space where we make fun of people. And we do all kinds of really irreverent things, right? And you should check it out if you like. It, but we also have done media campaigns right where we basically flood twitter and flood the internet with like campaigns that call out either elected officials like lori lightfoot right um like who, like our aldermen depending on what they do if they don't respond to us right and also calling out the issues right because it's really important to understand that we can't just be amongst ourselves we need to let the world know what's happening we need to um use social media to our advantage right so what has worked in in certain situations to stop things like for example when the Hilco explosion happened we all went out and went to Lori Lightfoot's house and you know we were one of the I think one of the first to like do that so it was really effective because not only was she not expecting it people were actually taking over the streets in her neighborhood and three we also had a Twitter storm right where we started to really put to the forefront the damages that they had done right media helped a lot taking pictures of the damage that they had done was a lot so um I think putting the stories out there is super important. Uh, Gloria and I run a group called Testimonios. And what we do is we actually gather the stories of folks and their experiences in different neighborhoods that they had to overcome serious, you know, like all of us have to overcome structural issues in order to even survive in these spaces. So documenting that, making sure that that gets out, right? Um, and also old school organizing, right? Which is literally educating people in the neighborhood, knocking from door to door, even though I know COVID makes it really difficult. Holding these protests, vigils, you know, we have done anything from sit-ins to occupations to um, 
you know, so you name it, right? We have as people who have had to fight for basic things for many, many years. And just as a fun fact, which isn't fun, all most of the schools that have been built in Little Village have been built because of mothers having to do sit-ins, hunger strikes, occupations, or some sort of long-term protests, right? Everywhere from South, uh, I think Saucedo was one of them. Little Village High School was another one. Even Juarez was another one, right? Like all of these schools that we've had, mothers that had to put their lives on the line to get this, right? So our history of oppression and resistance in this community is really long. So I think part of it is informing ourselves about the things that have already happened, the strategies that have been used, that have worked, and now adding the new thing, which is y'all, your creativity, you know, art, and most of all, like consciousness, right? Again, informing our folks from the tamalera in the corner to the guy who sells the lotes to the professor and the teachers, the white teachers that come in and think they're saving kids, right? We need to educate every everybody like we can't and our parents right our siblings right and even the game makers right like everybody needs to understand that we all play a role in in this neighborhood and either for better or for worse right so yeah i think that definitely there's a long strategy a long list of strategies tactics um, but most of it is coming together with the desire to learn and to do and to work together so like you said, like you everyone, said plays everyone plays a role, plays a role to gentrification. Can you like name how we contribute to gentrification and how it affects in our community? Yeah, so, you know, I, one of the things that I talked a little bit about was artists, right? Um, and, you know, I'm not knocking all artists, but artists can be very individualistic, right? And there's like, I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have my little gallery, right? Um, and I'm going to invite all my white friends to come and see all my awesome stuff, right? And so that white friend brings another white friend and they're like, oh my God, this neighborhood is so cute. You know, like they have all these cute things. We should come and see how much it costs here, right? And it's super cheap in the beginning. So, of course, they flood to it, right? And then they're like, oh, but I want a coffee shop here and I want a florist here and I want a yoga thing here and I want a barber so slowly right these individual actions start to bring in attention to the to people from people who have the money and the capacity to be mobile right which a lot of us don't and with that comes speculation like the real estate people right oh this house is only worth eighty thousand dollars if I put in fifty thousand which I have the credit to do I can now it could be a three hundred thousand dollar home right so I don't know if you saw I think it was Forbes magazine that said that Pilsen is like the number one neighborhood in the entire country right in terms of like attraction so what went from being houses where you could rent for four hundred dollars to a family of five now is two thousand dollar apartments right uh and who can afford that so i think that's one right when we start to really cater to the folks that come in right and and especially you know unfortunately students also play a role uic being so close um it's just like oh our students have financial aid they can afford to pay more right and we can make an apartment of four bedrooms into something we can charge two thousand dollars because every person has a bedroom that pays five hundred right so that kind of stuff but also i think more than that right again as i was talking about systemic it's the fact that the city gives incentives right through i don't know if you know about tax increment financing right so um all the ways in which they incentivize the investment into communities especially in the business districts right the way that they give money to chambers of commerce to create special businesses that attract new people the way that they choose to invest in certain parts of east pilsen but leave west pilsen to figure it out for itself right so they're beautifying the streets they're paving it they're putting gardens they're doing all kinds of beautiful things which we all want but they're not really for us right well west pilsen which is like the you know the the hood side of pilsen still right people are getting shot right um you still don't have nice streets right people are living in homes with like rodent problems right i mean it's just like the investment of the city matters too and then i think the other piece is also again as i said our own people right like how many of us haven't heard oh i just want to move to the suburbs to give my 
kids a better life, right? Get them away from this neighborhood. Like they don't need to. And I, and I feel that, right? Cause my children, I would want the same for my children. Right. But somehow, you know, I, I'm, I grew up in the hood. I was born in the hood and I think I'm just going to be hood all my life because I think there's a, a authenticity here that you won't find in any other space. There's an ability to play music loud. If you want, you can have parties if you want. Well, not right now, COVID, you know, but you could be your authentic self without being worried about the police being called on you without the, you know, being worried about your neighbors disliking you, right? So again, that life, esa vida that we bring to things can still be lived here. And I think we need to preserve that ability rather than give it up for comfort or safety, right? Why don't we become our own safety spaces? You know, maybe community, not, not policing, but com community ways to keep each other safe, right? You know, mutual aid things to allow each other to have food when we need it, right? Creating phone trees so that we know what's happening in our neighborhoods. So I think there's many ways in which we can still keep each other's informing folks. Oh, if you sell your house for 300,000, you know, you're going to make my house go up too, which means the taxes are going to go up, which means I'm going to have to move too, right? So understanding the value of our spaces is not just about money, right? Um, but unfortunately, again, we do live in a capitalist system. And like you mentioned before, there's like, you know, corporations do affect gentrification. And one of my questions is like, how do land developers, like corporations like Hilco or Nova Construction contribute to the gentrification? And does it impact our quality of safety inside the community? I mean, yeah, safety, if you think about the basic thing of breathing, <laughs> like we should be able to breathe clean air and we don't, right? Like literally the Little Village has the highest asthma rate of any neighborhood in, in the entire city, I think other than East Chicago, right? Which has all the refineries from the petroleum industry. We have some of the worst air quality probably in the entire state. Um, we have some of the lowest graduation rates in our schools, right? So the issues affecting the Mexican immigrant community, the Latinx immigrant community are still here, right? Right? They're not going away because some white folks are moving in or their houses are getting more expensive. Um, what is happening is that it's exacerbating things like homelessness, right? Like, especially not right now during COVID and the high rate of unemployment, you're seeing a lot of folks who can't afford their rents, right? Who have to go into the street. So land developers, right? What they do is they buy land, they speculate and they say, okay, if I'm going to buy this house and I'm going to invest in it, I know that by doing that, I'm already driving up the price of the neighborhood, right? And I can invest $80,000 now, it's going to be worth half a million in five years but who can do that who has the just the cash laying around to invest three hundred thousand dollars now to make a million and a half later right there's a lot of privilege and a lot of planning that goes into that in order to make that happen right so i think again i ask ourselves what is safe if safety means being able to walk down your street without getting shot we still don't have that even with gentrification we still don't have that right there's so much violence going on right now especially because once you're moving the the you know we have to acknowledge that we live in gang territory once you start moving folks you know and it happened in humble park as well and it happened in garfield park too once you start moving one gang west which is what they do right because they want access to downtown they move us west they're trying to push everybody at once there's going to be that gang turf war right which then people who live there are going to have to die in order to continue to live in their own neighborhood and then what happens once we kill ourselves then they come in and just clean up right and they use that same type of violence as an excuse to continue to come in and try to clean 
clean up the neighborhood and get rid of the hooligans, right? When it's themselves causing the problems, right? And I also think about the fact that violence doesn't exist in a vacuum. Poverty is violence, right? Lack of investment in school is violence. The fact that they're poisoning our water and air is violent. The fact that we can't really even move freely in the streets without even being harassed by a policeman or being put in jail if you're a dark-skinned person or an immigrant, that's violence, right? So I just think that the ways in which the city and the land developers and all these people work, when you talk to them, they have good intentions, right? But what do they say? The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So it doesn't matter that the intentions are good. You're still killing us. You're still not making it any safer for us. You just want to kick us out. And once we are gone, right, then of course it's safe for you because now you bring in the police and the police are actually going to listen to you because they know that you're a taxpayer who votes, you know, and I don't know if you know this, right, but they keep a log of everybody who votes. They know who you, who, how many times you vote. So if people in your household don't vote, the police are not going to respond as quickly if you need them. You're not, the alderman's not going to respond. Literally, they have a list and say frequent voter. And if that person calls the alderman and tells them, hey, I have a pothole outside, they're going to come and answer. If that person is undocumented or hasn't voted, you good luck with that. And that is why Little Village is such a mess because they know that such, even though we have one of the highest percentages of people in the city living together, we have the highest rate of non-voters. Why? Because undocumented folks and also people who don't believe in the system or just don't know how it works. So again, it's all connected, right? And I think the more education we have, the more aware we are of our power, the more that we come together to really face the truth, which is wider is not better, (laughs) then I think we will be able to really make a difference in our own community. And just going on to like the last question, what are organizations that are helping to combat gentrification and like just the inequalities as mentioned before by you? You know, I know El Foro de Pueblo is doing some things, but mainly our work has been around, you know, holding the aldermen accountable through, um, you know, a lot of the times when things have happened, it has been because they, they have not been, re- he has not been responsive, right? So El Foro de Pueblo was created to really bring um, kind of accountability to the neighborhood because we know that Munoz was in power for like 20 years and did absolutely nothing but, you know, basically feed his own friends right and continue to allow this this the the community to just disintegrate into violent uh, spaces right as as long as he benefited from it so that's one you know it's one organization that is doing however we do more support group for other folks um right now what what i do know is that it's people coming together like the vendors like the street vendors like people that are just community members without necessarily an organization because you need to understand right a lot of these community organizations benefit from city money right a lot of these community organizations benefit from you know, the land speculators. A lot of this community organizations benefit from all the cuts that they get, right, for doing the dirty work of the city. So even though on the surface they might say, oh, you know, yeah, we're going to show up and do this little dance, right, around, oh, we don't want this to happen. At the end, when it comes to policies, when it comes to actually showing up for people, when it comes to putting their money where their mouth is, they're not there. So I don't want to say names because, to be honest, there isn't, like, a real community organization. I think Little Village Environmental Justice Organization is peripherally involved. However, they're mainly an environmentally just justice organization, right? There's also Mibillita, but also they're working, again, more on Hilco, right? And they're more around folks that come together to support. However, I think that what's happening right now in Little Village, and I'm sure other people can talk more about that, is more grassroots in the sense that it's coming together organically, right? And I think that's what we need to do. We need to stop looking at these organizations as they're going to do anything. No, they're not. Trust me, I have worked for so many of them. And at the end of the day, 
como dicen en español, con dinero baila el perro, right? So if there's money involved and, they, and they're going to lose something in the process, they're not going to do it, right? They will sell you out. So I think, again, it's you all, it's us coming together. Stop looking to organizations. And if you want to organize, organize yourselves. You have everything you need. You have the mentors. I'm here if you need anything, right? You have folks like Stephanie, like Gloria, like so many people that you have access to even through us. So don't wait for nobody. You don't need an organization. We need to stop thinking that leaders are going to save us. We are our own leaders. We don't need nobody. We need us. And that's it. Well, we appreciate what you told us and definitely very wise words and very, very open-minded. But that kind of sums up the interview. Um, thank you so much, Laura, for being here and just giving us your wisest words. Thank and, you. And just remember, you guys are listening to What's Up on WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, broadcasting from the comfort of our homes. And we'll be back for a short break. Hi, we're back. My name's August. Uh, I'd like to talk about some something that Laura touched on, but it's art and gentrification, the relationship between the two, how um, how they affect each other here. Today we have Glow, Gloria Talamantes. She's an artist, a wonderful human being, a leader and founder of the uh, Brown Wall Project. Before before we get into that interview, let me let me just uh, elaborate on some of the the stuff we're gonna be talking about. Like she said before, when gentrification happens, many times as artists that come into the neighborhood from outside other neighborhoods that come in and jack up the prices for the people already living there. And something that draws a lot of people is art, is the murals and the the artwork produced by the neighborhoods and the people. And it's uh it's like it's like candy. It's like candy to to people. Like who doesn't like art, you know? This is it's like a, a, a common unifier for for all humans that we enjoy looking at at beautiful things and for some people art has become a, a commodity to sell it's become something to consume and the uh the dynamic between art and gentrification is like it really just draws people in it draws us all in and no pun intended for the draw part but it draws us in to to come into these neighborhoods and and just buy and and sell you know but that's not that's not what we're doing today that's not what we're doing in the future this this art is not for sale exactly and i totally agree with what you're saying and just going on to the topic how like art has the ability to kind of cause something that could be detrimental and something beneficial you know like how muralists paint um you know a lot of these very culture neighborhoods and what is the impact there like what are what type of people are you drawing there you know and also just pointing out that art causes a lot of prestigious like tendencies you know Art is known to be just for the elite or for the bourgeoisie. And it definitely just t- changes like um, kind of the status quo of how art is perceived. Is it for the people or is it against the people? Is it for only a certain type of person? So, yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, everyone has to kind of be worried about um, how the effects of art is to you and like to everyone around you. And Definitely, it, art is empowering, but at the same time, it could impact it, you know? Not knowing the same roles you're doing or not knowing your contribution to, to what you're doing. But then again, I don't know, I really like art, so it all depends, you know? Those are very good points. All right, without further ado, I'd like to introduce again, <laughs> I'd like to introduce again um, one of my favorite human beings, 
Gloria Glow Talamantes. Uh, she's an artist from Little Village, community activist, and the founder of the Brown Wall Project. Welcome to our show. Hi, August. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. It's been such an amazing show already. Just tuned in uh, a little bit earlier and caught so much uh, goodness. Honestly, don't even feel like I can add much more to it because there's just been so much substance to, to this show already. But hi, thank you for having me. Glow, I have some questions for you. The first I, I want to ask, could you explain to our audience what the Brownwall Project is? Yeah, absolutely. The Brownwall Project is something I started when I was uh, still doing graffiti in the streets of Chicago. And I started it as a way for a few, few for a few reasons. I started doing it to talk about um, and bring um, emphasis to the Graffiti Blaster program that was initiated in the mid-90s. The Graffiti Blaster program, as you all may know in our community, uh, specifically in Little Village, what they would do is they come and uh, rather than sand blast or power wash they would um, come and paint our buildings patch up buildings whether they were homes or businesses in brown paint and so I started to really think about what that was doing to you know my mental health uh, walking to and from school walking to and from the uh, grocery stores and just in my everyday life and so part of finding that solution rather than uh, continuing to or other than continuing to as graffiti artists or, or graffiti writers used to call it is like fight the buff right other than doing it that way I wanted to create spaces within the neighborhood to to really talk about it and to really have people critically analyze the system that was in place to ultimately erase our voices the way that we expressed ourselves on walls. A lot of times I do understand that a lot of the voices that were being expressed were through gang graffiti. And so for me, I know Laura mentioned it shortly or briefly that, you know, everyone has their place, right? Everybody has a has a place, a part to play. And although we deem gangbanging as something terrible, I'm not saying it's not a bad thing that that is something that we we have here right and that's something that uh, prevailed for so many years and so although you know these quote-unquote bad people are doing things that are caused through poverty they are also people and i think one of the things that i learned very early on through the project is that those were voices those are also voices and so yeah, so partially it was created uh, for that, to, to bring awareness, to talk about mental health primarily, something that, you know, a lot of the mental health uh, clinics were closed down during uh, Ram's tenure. And so it's something that I know that is very important. It's also partially beautification, right, to an extent. Um, but also it was, uh, for me, a way to go against the grain of the gender normality of what graffiti was. So, like, if you grew up doing graffiti as a woman or as a girl, you know, you, you didn't have the same type of opportunities. Graffiti is already male-dominant. Male and so for me, it was a way to go against that, too. So rather than wait for permission to have space to paint and things like that, the Brownwall Project really served to allow myself and others like me the room to be creative publicly. As an artist, what do you think the role of an artist is when it comes to beautifying our neighborhood? 
I think the role of the artist uh, when it comes to beautifying the neighborhood is is important, definitely. But I think that also in the importance of the beautification, there is a process. And I think that process is just as important as the ultimate goal of like what your image is. And I think that it is important for us to understand that we have to take into consideration the the people, right? The people who are going to get to enjoy this work. And we need to think short term and long term. And so um, the role of, of our art is to, or us as artists, is to push beyond the status quo. Push beyond the status quo and also be reflective of the people in the communities that we're painting in as well as just consider, be considerate of the people and and their struggles even and the oppressive systems that have been in place for decades. And yeah, I think that's that's our role. Where would you say the line is crossed when when an artist goes from beautifying the community to aiding gentrification? I think the line is crossed when we don't allow ourselves to be researchers of our own process. And also when we don't allow ourselves the room to be students, right? And so I know that a lot of artists are teaching artists as well. And so one of the things that I've always uh, have to remind myself as, as one myself is that I'm learning just as much as I'm teaching or vice versa, right? And, and this doesn't come and it just comes in waves. And for me, I think that, you know, I have... We all make mistakes. We're not perfect, right? But I think that when we don't allow that ourselves that room to to really understand or to fully learn some of the things that you know are are trying to be uh, trying, other people are trying to teach us, we uh, we cross that line. Like that's it's a very blurry line, right? And I think the other the other part is that it's very easy to be manipulated by people who have money, right? As Lauda mentioned, like we live in a very capitalistic society and that's how we've been taught to live for so many years so it's something that's already ingrained even right as we're born and so when we start to value money more than we start to value people i think that that's another line where we kind of cross in these times as we know more and more people are aware of the toxic practices of land developers displacing families what do you think the reasons are for developers taking advantage of of artists well, I think that particularly developers are very privy to the fact that we are educated about gentrification, especially in Chicago now. I think that Chicago has seen enough gentrification to understand its role and also its process and the ways in which strategically artists are being utilized to um, gentrify and to help promote that developer's agenda. And so I think that with that, developers start thinking differently, right? To their benefit, though. It's not necessarily to the benefit of the communities where they're quote-unquote developing. And so I think that now that we are aware that we are aware of each other, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're using these uh, mechanisms against each other. So they're weaponizing art. So it's not necessarily that they're using artists, they're weaponizing the art. And so for me, I try to see it that way. And I try to always revert back to, okay, it's not about the artist. It's about the actual art that's being used against our own people. And so I think that that's, that's one of the ways, I mean, there's definitely different ways, different reasons why and, and how they how they do that. Particularly here in Little Village, there's an example not too far away from me is that there was a developer who came and purchased a building who erased, whitewashed a very historical and, and 
and uh, complex mural border existence in, in the United States as not only um, immigrants, but also indigenous people, right? And so I thought it was really interesting to see that, you know, once that developer learned that art was going to be beneficial to getting his business rented, he decided to revert to pay artists to come and quote unquote, beautify the space. But the agenda was to get someone to rent the space, right? But then, you know, when they first purchased the mural, the, the building, that mural was whitewashed. And so like, for me, I thought that was you know, that's pretty dumb. Like, did you not know what you had? Obviously you did not, because had you not erased that, your space would have already, you know, the value of the space itself is there, right? And so I think that understanding that, you know, you might be very savvy and good with your money and you might be able to manipulate with your money and get your own way with your money and you might feel entitled to do all the things that you want to do as a developer. But at the end of the day, you're also very dumb because you don't understand culture. You don't know how to preserve culture. You don't know how to protect the culture. And you also, you know, you yourself don't become worthy of that when you don't allow yourself those little basic things. How do you think an artist should approach the significance in, in painting murals for the community? Honestly, I think that for me to say that one, one way is the right way is, is very wrong. Um, so I don't want to just say one way, particularly I can, I can think of different arts collectives who do, I, I want to refrain from using thoughtful because it's just like very basic levels of respect. One of the, one of the collectives that comes to mind for me in, in the way that they uh, do the process is the Inglewood Arts Collective. And what they're doing is they're painting a viaduct off of 56th and Halsted, I believe, or 59th and Halsted. And they're really, they're really pushing for community input and community involvement and community participation. And for me, that just shows me that it can be done. So when I see anything other than some of those elements, for me, it's just a red flag because you know, we're not invisible here in our communities. We live here. We have struggled here. We have been here for a long time. And so when artists completely ignore, whether it's one voice, two or three or a thousand, it doesn't matter. It, it Those voices matter, right? It doesn't matter if it's one person and, or more. So I think that the Inglewood Arts Collective has a really thoughtful process. I, just for the lack of better words, I think the process is very thoughtful. The way in which um, I run the Brownwall Project is also thoughtful. One of the things that ended up happening through the Brownwall Project is that I started noticing that a lot of artists from Mexico were coming and they were looking for opportunities to paint. And the Brownwall Project became the model for that international exchange, right? And so being able to explain to them the complexities and just the context behind how arts and politics here in the city work allowed them to really understand a different level of culture that even though the culture here is from a lot of our culture is brought back from Mexico, right? It still changes. It, it changes because our environment changes and, and so do our laws and policies. And so I think that I want to say that uh, the Broadwell Project, you know, has, has a thoughtful process too. And I don't do it on my own either. Like there's different people who help me with the, with the project. I have mentors and also volunteers who help. 
people like Delilah Salgado, Laura, Miguel, Miguel uh, Aguilar, Gabriela Ibarra, just so many different people who have helped inform a lot of that work. I think that when I talk about the Brownwall Project, it's very easy for me to say, yeah, I founded the project, but it's not something, it's a community. I feel like it's been a community effort all the way through. And so for me, I think that that partially for me is a process that I feel like is is uh, thoughtful as well. There are other artists who are doing very thoughtful work around gentrification. And if you all follow Tonika Johnson, she has the Folded Map Project. That project is amazing and on so many levels, right? Recently, I uh, started following an artist in Detroit whose rage I really, I, re- I really, I feel very uh, similar to Bryce. His name is Bryce um, and he's from Detroit and he does this project called Roadwork or it's a series called Roadwork and he creates these signs, these roadwork signs and he uses slogans like the hood is not for sale or the gentrifier is not welcomed in the hood, things like that. And so there's there's so many different people, artists who are doing amazing work and so many different processes too that are still very you know thoughtful about how they do the work in the communities that they work in. Chloe, I want to thank you for thoroughly answering my questions. You're a wonderful talk. I think um, I, I I wouldn't be able to ask any more kind of you you answered them all Uh, i just want to thank you again for your time thank you for having me i hope you have a wonderful day thanks and next up we're kind of you know just a little recap about what we're going to be talking about and me and Gio also have like an alley or tips on how to combat gentrification you know this is a very serious problem and it does impact all of us and i think Gio has like something more to kind of add and also his experience with you know gentrification and that okay well so from we were talking, you know, we talked a lot about aldermen and stuff like that and how they can be a part of the problem. So for sure, a way to help combat that is definitely definitely voting locally. It's important. Attending ward and community meetings, you, you want to be a part of what's going on, you know. And sometimes it's not your fault because things are being done in closed doors. So sometimes they won't have meetings. Sometimes they will not include you in this. But, you know, it's important to make sure that we, we make it known that we want to be a part of these things. Sometimes the problem is within our neighborhood and who we elect as aldermen to combat from electing. So to combat from electing aldermen that don't focus on the community's needs, we should strive to be that new alderman maybe that understands the needs of the community. You know, having community gatherings, we can't protest if everyone in our neighborhood isn't aware of the situation. If we make gatherings interactive or symbolic like Kokoi and other community members did for the Discommon Little Village, it gathers interactions. They created a community gathering on September 16th, falling on Mexican independence as the Mexican community in Little Village is prevalent. The community showed up because this date is symbolic to the bit of freedom we gained through history. Um, now we gathered on this day to continue to fight the colonizer from stealing our land, aka gentrifiers in this case uh you know they played music they had gritos um celebrated not just mexican independence but acknowledged other latin american countries um they had uh, had to make your own poster table for community members to express their feelings towards the gentrifiers they had live speeches traditional native american prayers for the neighborhood they had um advocacy for black and brown communities that face systematic racism and the list goes on 
So if a community can gather to learn, understand, and express themselves on the issues in their community, it could lead a stronger community to a stronger fight against gentrification. And I do kind of want to add of what Gio's saying. The alderman, the person in your ward, he represents you, you know? Be worried about who you're choosing, who you're electing, and all of that. I mean, come on, like, a lot of, like, lower-income communities aren't that participant in, like, you know, and when it comes to elections or voting, you know. So just going on to that topic, it's just support more like inside voting and just promote more of that. And just talking about that, not only on a federal level, like how we have like in two weeks, but, you know, locally too. make sure who you're electing, do your research on it, promote it, because at the end of the day, who you have, whoever you're electing is going to impact you and it's going to impact you significantly. And just you know, a lot of lower income communities don't vote. So these aldermen, like they went on a landslide basically because they have their own supporters who vote for them. And that's how they kind of win their elections. So I just promote like more community engagement, have people more aware about what's happening in their community and, you know, give them a kind of a voice and have the opportunity to you know, discuss the topics that impact us and then sooner or later, just choose your alderman who represents you as a ward, who goes and represents you and your community when he's going perspectives in around our whole city in general. And it goes on and on and on. And this is how we kind of combat gentrification, how we promote unity and, you know, we kind of benefit in each other. So that's kind of wraps up our show for gentrification. We hope we enlighten you on some of the facts. And again, my name is Melissa. Sandra. Gio. And I'm August. Shout out for, you know, the behind of our scenes, uh, the WhatsApp production team. And thank you so much. And remember, you are listening to WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, broadcasting live from the comfort of our homes. And thank you. Hello, it's me. I haven't heard from you in a while. I hope it's because you're listening and enjoying our amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delicious, funny, breathtaking, wee-snatching, Liddy Poppin' Production. If not, you should listen to our radio show, What's Up, again. In the meantime, we'll be twerking on our next one. Here in Lumpin' Radio. So stay tuned for our next amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delicious, funny, breathtaking, weave-snatching, highly amazing production. I hope that you were informed about the YOLO-licious parts of life and get your bag every day. Don't forget to listen to us on SoundCloud at YOLOKALI, on social media like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr at YOLOKALI, or visit at yolokali.org for more. We are the robots. We are the robots.